from the Pardes Institute of Jewish Studies. This is Pardes from Jerusalem. I'm Larry Kluger, a Pardes alum. This week, Shoftim by Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. First, a personal note. This podcast will continue, but this episode will be my last as the host. After 15 years, it's time to hang up the microphone. Thank you to the staff of Pardes for their support of the podcast, to the faculty for their teachings, and to you, our listeners and subscribers. One final request. If you haven't done so already, please join me in financially supporting Pardes. You can donate online at any time via pardes.org.il. Thank you very much. This week, Shoftim by Rabbi Mish Hammer Kasoy. Rabbi Hammer Kasoy has prepared a handout that you can use as you listen to the podcast. You can download the handout from elmod.pardes.org. Rabbi Hammer Kasoy is a member of the Pardes faculty. And now, Rabbi Dr. Mish Hammer Kasoy. Love and marriage, love and marriage, go together like a horse and carriage. If, let me tell you, brother, you can't have one without the other. Okay, I know I'm no Frank Sinatra, but when in 1955, when Frank Sinatra sang it, I think that he sang something that was obvious. But yet, in the year 220, or Tashap, I think a lot of people would beg to differ. Um, our Parsha has proposed another pair, Shoftim Vashotrim, that also, some might say, in the year 220, perhaps, don't go together, judges and police officers. Um, the... Uh, the juxtaposition of shoftim v'shotrim, police officers and judges, in the opening words of our parsha, I don't think is just an offhanded slip of the tongue. Um, I want to spend today explore two readings of this pairing, shoftim v'shotrim, judges together with officers, and what lessons does this juxtaposition juxtaposition have for us, given the summer events generally and specifically the calls to defund the, to defund the police. Um, so reading, starting with reading number one, Rashi, Rashbam, Ramban, Ramban, Ibn Ezra, in a rare expression of unanimity, all of them agree that shoftim v'shotrim titen l'cha v'chol sha'arecha, judges and officers you should put in all of your gates, are mamish, a horse and carriage. The judge issues the sentence and the shoter enforces it with an emphasis on force. In, uh, in Parshat Mishpatim, in, in Exodus, it says, Ela Mishpatim asher tasim. Why the word tasim? The Gemara says, Scripture should have said, teach. Why does it say tasim? Because these are the tools of the judge. Staff, whip, shofar, and sandal. You have to put them in front of the judge. That is to say, there has to be force involved in judgment. Um, staff and whip. Let me talk a minute about staff and whip. There's two different types of lashes. Bla uh, biblical lashes, which are generally perceived as punitive, and rabbinic lashes, which are generally perceived as um, coercive. The biblical lashes are always in groups of 40, 
rabbinic lashes, makot mardut, are, um, have no root in the Bible. They, biblical lashes are no more than, are up to 39, I'm sorry. And rabbinic lashes are whatever it takes in order to coerce. Um, they can be used to prevent pro future negative prohibitions or negative prohibitions, and they can also be used to force someone to do positive provision, pro, uh, positive commandments. And the Gemara says, that we continue to lash him until he accepts upon himself the, the commitment to act or until his soul expires. I don't know whether we should take that literally or not. Commentators are not sure whether we should take that literally or not, but it gives you a sense of the tremendous discretion, the tremendous uh, um, flexibility, and... Uh, power in these makot mardut, these rabbinic lashes, which can be used uh, in any place and in any form uh, that the that the shoter uh, sees fit. Now, times have changed, and so has halacha. We do not give lashes anymore. Uh, but I still think that thinking about this primary form of physical coercion in the Gemara uh, is worth thinking about the way it has impacted us. Uh, our Parsha has, seems to imply that force is, a, is an essential component of justice and the rule of law. They're just simply inseparable. And this is illustrated in the Yerushalmi, in Kiddushin, which is on your source sheet, as is all of the sources that we'll be citing today. Um, there, it lays out the prohibition of the priest uh, who is restricted, the Kohen is restricted in who he can marry, only a virgin from the house of Israel. But the Gemara is not clear on what that means. Is it parents who were both born Jewish, one or both of them converted before she was born? Was it, uh, is, it some, is it that they converted before she was age three? Uh, and something strange happened. The, uh, something strange happens. It's clear to Rabbi Abahu that this Kohen was obligated to divorce his wife, um, who did not fit his understanding of marrying a virgin from the house of Israel. Uh, but there, Rabbi B, and he lies him down and he's getting to, and he's ready to give him lashes in order to coerce him to divorce his wife. Rabbi Bibi objects, wait a minute, stop it, this is excessive force, you're getting out of hand. How can you possibly justify beating someone for such a minor infraction? Um, and Rabbi Abahu relents on the question of force, but he does not relent. On the, on the principle. It is clear to him that the, um, that the Kohen is required to divorce his wife. Yet, immediately after Rabbi Abahu gives, lets the individual up and says he and does not give him lashes, the Kohen flouts the ruling of the court and says, if you're not going to give me lashes, then I obviously don't really have to divorce my wife. The law is real only if it's enforced. It does not have teeth without enforcement. So that's an illustration of the extent to which it's essential 
that shoftim v'shotrim titein lecha, that the two that if you that you can't really have shoftim without having shotrim. If you don't enforce the laws, they don't really exist. At the same time, the Talmud transmits a deep ambivalence about the use of force. Force may seem like a quick way to accomplish the goal of gaining compliance, but ultimately it has tremendous limits and it can easily escalate out of control. In Brachot 58a, which is on your source sheet, but I'm just, Rav Shayla gives lashes to, an, to a man who has sex with a non-Jew. Sorry for the theme. The lashes achieve their apparent goal, and yet they provoke incredible resistance, even to the point of something totally unheard of. The person who's the um, the convict who has been given lashes uh, goes and informs to the non-Jewish authorities. This uh, Roshela ultimately is able to get away with having given these lashes, but not without tremendous risk with the help of a miracle. And eventually he has to kill the culprit himself. Things have spiraled completely out of control. Force worked on the short term, but it didn't add to the long-term respect for the system. A second story drives home um, and it demonstrates this ambivalence towards force even further. Rabbi Meir used to deliver a sermon in the synagogue of Hamat every Friday night. And there, and there was a woman there who was accustomed to listen. One night, the sermon ran late. She went and sought to enter her house, and the candle had already gone out. Her husband was furious. Where were you? She says, I was just listening to Rabbi Meir. He says to her, I swear that you are not coming back into this house until you go and you spit in the face of that preacher. Whoa. Now the poor woman is in delay. It is in a dilemma. What shall she do? Rabbi Meir sees with a divine, has a, has a nevuah sees with the divine, with divine spirit that, she, that she's got this dilemma and he decides to fake that he's got a sore in his eye. He calls out, is there anyone out here who knows how to cure a sore in the eye by using a charm? Let them come and help me out. And her neighbors immediately start to elbow her in the ribs. Get up there. Try to get yourself into the <coughs> A clever... A clever answer here will get you back into your house. Make a charm and spit in his eye. When she gets up there, he says to her, she, she gets to the front of the room to volunteer. And he says, are you sure you know how to do, it, how to do a charm? And she can't help himself, herself. She's overwhelmed by the greatness of the rabbi. And she says, actually, no, I have no idea. Rabbi, rabbi Mayer says, don't worry. It'll be okay. Just spit seven times and everything will work out for the best. Um, and after she spits, he says to her, he says to her, now go home and tell your husband, you told me to spit one time and I spit seven times. Thus letting out, less letting the cat out of the bag that the whole thing has been a scam all along, a setup. The students in the, in the audience were furious. Rabbi, how do we degrade the Torah in such a manner? How can you let that, rab that husband be so disrespectful and then let yourself be spit on in the eye? If you would have told us what was going on, we would have brought him and whipped him on the bench in order to force him to be reconciled to his wife.
Rebbe Mayer is unwavering. He says to them, should the honor of Mayer be equivalent to the honor of God? If with respect to God's name, um, which is written in holiness, the Torah says that it should be erased by the sota water in order to affect peace between a man and his wife. Isn't it all the more so that I should forgo my honor? The husband displays insolence towards the rabbinic establishment. If one who disrespects the emissary of the court can be given lashes, as is clear from a number of places in the Talmud, how much the more so is it obvious that one who orders his, face, his wife to spit in the face of the rabbi, the very embodiment of Torah, certainly deserves lashes? The rabbi, the, the students are correct in demanding that he be brought and put on the bench and whipped. The fact that the husband demands this is of his wife because she's honoring the sage by listening to his sermon only aggravates his crime. Based on legal reasoning alone, the students are completely right. However, Rebbe Mayer teaches that what's legally justified is not always wise. Rabbi Mayer's actions are much more effective than the students' violence would have been. Rabbi Mayer not only imitates divine behavior by humiliating and humbling himself publicly, but he also models appropriate behavior for the arrogant husband. A little bit of humility and forbearance would have served the angry husband well. Furthermore, peace is restored to the home more effectively than it would have been had the husband been beaten into uh, submission. Thus, the story demonstrates the way, yes, force sometimes is necessary, but lashes shouldn't be used in a power-hungry, legalistic way, which is more focused on the honor of the rabbi as an end in itself than on the restoration of order. Rabbi Mayer here is making a compelling case to me for what some folks call defunding the police. That is to say, reducing the amount of policing and police and coercion in favor of substituting other forms of justice in order to create public order. Um, the, uh, these ideas are trans the, the moral of this story is translated by both Rav Chaim David Halevi and by the Chazan Ish um, into practical halacha, where they suggest that really force is something that can that was used once upon a time when it was when it was effective, but nowadays in the modern period. Sometimes the force is more destructive than it is helpful. And instead, we ought to use what the Chazon Ish says, avutot shel ahava, the forces of persuasion, and what Rachaim David Halevi suggests, chinuch, education, in order to create uh, and ensure public order rather than emphasizing force, uh, even though force is legally appropriate. So if I can summarize my first argument, Shoftim v'shotrim titen l'cha b'chol sh'arecha. Shoftim and shotrim, judges and, uh, and police officers, are a horse and a carriage. They go together. There's no such thing as the rule of law without some sort of force. 
force is necessary, but it shouldn't, but it should be limited. The Gemara in several places calls for moderate forms of shifting away from the use of force and defunding the police to um, because force can easily be abused and undermine the goals of both immediate compliance and long-term respect for government for governmental authority. That's argument number one. Now I'd like to turn to reading number two without disagreeing with Rashi, Ibn Ezra, Ramban, and the Rashbam, the Sephardic chief rabbi who I just referenced, Rav Chaim David Halevi, um, has another reading of Shoftim Vashotrim. He suggests that they go together even more than a horse and carriage because their roles are actually overwhelming, uh, uh, overlapping. That is to say that a, shof- that a shoter is really a form of a shofet. Um, he says, it's no surprise that the police officers of the people are also called judges, for they carry out judgment by imposing the social order on the people, and it's their authority to arrest criminals and to bring them to court. For this reason, you shall appoint judges, shoftim, and shotrim officers, is interpreted to mean the shoftim are judges. The officer, the shotrim are the leaders who have responsibility for the community. So he reads the, and in doing so, by conflating shoftim and shotrim as overlapping functions, he, Rav Chaim David HaLevi implicitly suggests that the first two verses of our Parsha are referring to both the shoftim, the judges in, in the courtroom, and the shotrim, the judges who are on the streets. Um, you shall point, shoftim v'shotrim, titen l'cha v'kol sh'arecha, sh'er Hashem l'kecha, noten l'cha, you shall appoint officers and judges in all of your settlements, and they shall judge the people with justice. You shall not judge unfairly. You shall not show partiality. You shall not take bribes, for bribes blind the eyes of the discerning and upset the plea of the just. The Midrash and Rashi in the Midrash's wake emphasize just how difficult mishpat sedek, fair judgment, not being partial really is. Not only do you have to be careful to see all the pers- hear all of the perspectives at once, but you also can't take gifts from anyone, even if the gift is made explicitly with the condition that you'll ju- that the judge will judge only truthfully as the judge sees fit, because by definition, the judge cannot help but feel a sense of bias. Thus, Rav Chaim David Halevi argues the police, because he's a judge, he has to be so careful um, and to be restricted uh, in the way he makes arrest, only with solid evidence, and to limit the amount of time a a suspect is held without trial, to give the accused the benefit of the doubt. This is exactly the kind of thing that has proven so difficult um, on our streets. This summer I've been reading uh, the book by, uh, the excellent book by James Foreman, Locking Up Our Own, Crime and Punishment in Black America. It's a historical study of the way 
the ways black and brown people were victims of mass incarceration in DC, not just as a result of white people, but also in the hands of well-meaning black politicians, judges, and of course, police officers. Um, and the uh, civil rights activists in the 60s, 70s, and 80s thought put a huge emphasis on integrating the black uh, the, the police force and later to get black officers um, promoted on the assumption that those black officers would bring a different perspective uh, and more compassion to policing. And what's strange is that they were largely um, that they were largely disappointed. Uh, he tells an anecdote that I thought was very telling. Uh, he, Foreman, in addition to being a historian and a uh, and a defense lawyer, public attorney, also char um, founded a public charter school called the Maya Angelou School. And there, he tells of the way his students um, were victims of a weekly ritual of the police that gave them a shut a shakedown as they loitered on the corners during school breaks. Um, when one, when one kid said, why are you treating me with such hostility? Why have you dumped all of my things on the ground? You haven't, you're treating me so disrespectfully and you didn't even find anything. And the police officer responded to him, I didn't find anything this time. Um, according to Foreman, these the police officers never arrested any of the kids from the Maya Angelou Public Charter School. But yet, um, they created, they did, they caused so much damage to these kids. First, the pain of being repeatedly shake, shaken down on the street corner. Second, the kids were publicly humiliated. Refined David Halevi specifically talks about how humiliate, um, about how much damage a police officer does for the arrest of a person attracts much attention amongst his neighbors, acquaintances, and friends, and obviously within his family, even without being publicized in the media, this too causes great damage. Um, so much damage. Um, and third, even after being vindicated, these kids continued to be guilty in the eyes of the officers who declared out loud, you didn't get caught this time, but I'll be back for you. Um, perhaps this is the greatest damage of all, suggests Foreman. The hermeneutic of suspicion penetrates deeply and becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, my, co my colleague, um, Ethiopian activist, a Jewish Ethiopian activist, Israeli Ethiopian activist, Shula Mola, who's the chairperson of the Association for Ethiopian Jews in Israel, speaks also speaks very much about the self-fulfilling power of low expectations. Um, if black officers exhibit this, this disturbing and discriminating power behavior, white officers, um, do they even have a chance? And, and what about the common white folk? Before closing with the passage of Rabbi Nachman that may help us reach, think a little bit about how we might begin to um, let go of some of that inherent bias that we have, um, I'd like to summarize what we've concluded. First, reading one, shoftim v'shotrim go together like a horse and carriage. Coercion is essential um, because that's what makes the law powerful. They, 
just the same, the rabbis have their reservations about the use of force. They prefer partial defunding of the partial defunding of the police, shifting some of the money that could be used on using coercion and force in order to create law and order to use to, to promote education and, and persuasion uh, in order to achieve the same goal. Reading two, that of Rav Chaim David HaLevi, Shoftim and Shotrim are actually one in the same. Because force um, remains essential, it's inevitable that the police are going to be de facto judges before trial. And for this reason, they need to do everything they can everything that a judge must do in order to reduce their bias and judge favorably. We could stop here. And if you want to stop here, you certainly um, have a full thought to bring to your Shabbos table. But I'd like to share with you um, one source, one more source that I found very powerful um, and helpful for me in sort of thinking about how, what we can do um, to counter our own biases and the biases um, and the way those biases create um, self-fulfilling power of low expectations. Um, Rabbi Nachman in Likutei Maharan 282 um, has a drash on Tehillim 37. There it says in English, I'll just read in English in the interest of time, be patient and wait for the Lord. Do not be vexed um, by by the prospering man who carries out schemes. Give up anger, abandon fury, do not be vexed. It can only do harm. For evil men will be cut up. For those who look to the Lord, shall, they shall inherit the land. A little longer, there will be no wicked man. You will look at where he was and he will be gone. Okay, so the, 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 in the simple reading, Tehillim is saying that if you just hang out a little bit longer, God will take care of the wicked and make them disappear. Rabbi Nachman turns it on his head, turns this verse on its head. He says, um, no, a person must judge everyone favorably. Even someone who's completely wicked, it's necessary to search and find in him some modicum of good. That in the that that in that little bit he is not wicked, and by finding in him a modicum of good and judging him fairly, one genuinely elevates him to the scale of merit and can bring him to merit. Bring him to merit. Um, this is what's meant by the verse I just cited: "Od ma'at ve'ein rasha, ve'hitvonanta al mikomo ve'ineinu." And yet. A little, the, in a little bit, the wicked man will cease to be. He, you'll, you'll look in his, in his place and he will no longer be. That is, scripture warns to judge everyone favorably. Even if you see that he's completely wicked, Odmat ve'en rasha, you must search and see a little bit of good in him. Yet in the little, Odmat ve'en rasha, you must say, you must keep looking, Odmat, keep looking a little bit more until you find the good of him. And when you find that good, ein rasha, suddenly you'll realize that he's not wicked. For although you think he's wicked, uh, Rabbi Nachman says, although he's wicked, how is it possible that he does not still possess even a little bit of good? Is it possible that throughout his life he never once did some mitzvah or good deed? And by your finding in him yet a little bit of good, 
wherein he's not wicked, and you judge him favorably, you genuinely elevate him from the scale of guilt to the scale of merit, until, as a result of this, he turns to God in repentance. Now, Rabbi Nachman, I don't think here he's speaking objectively um, about someone who is almost completely wicked. But, but from our perspective, our inability, we, per- we perceive someone as almost completely, as Rasha, and we're looking at their wickedness. But if we insist on looking at that individual as od ma'at, as focusing on the part of that person who is, um, who is good, the nikudot tovot, and we see those parts, we'll cease to see ain rasha, the wickedness. Suddenly there is no wicked person. What we see is the good person. And when we see that good person, we actually can change the entirety of the reality. We will relate differently to the person who's being accused, of course, because what we see is a human being, not somebody who, as the police officer said so nastily, not yet I haven't caught you. We'll see someone who has the potential to do so much good. And by seeing the potential in that individual to to do good and by relating to them in that way, the at-risk kid ceases to be to see himself or herself as Rasha and sees their their own Nikudot Tovot and they're provoked in order to be the full person, the best person that they possibly could. And that is the mission of the Maya Angelo Charter School. But says Rav Chaim David Halevi and says Rabbi Nachman, it sh- that mission shouldn't be limited to the Maya Angelo Public Charter School. It should be something that every one of us should work hard to see in every individual with whom we interact. No matter how much they are like us or different than us, no matter how much they seem to be pre- presenting as at risk and destined for for future misbehavior. There's so much in this source, and I really encourage you to revisit it at your Shabbat table. Um, If even officers of color have struggled to find these nikudots to vote and love their fellow community members, um, we can be sure that white officers and common white folk have a lot of work to do when it comes to black to black lives and making them truly matter, myself included. But this is something that doesn't have to be limited to race, that could just improve the entirety of the way we relate to the world. If we could deeply integrate this teaching into our kishkas and into our daily interactions. May we merit to continue to build and improve on these timeless challenges of police brutality in Israel, in the United States, and in the world over, in order to create a world in which there really is no more Russia. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi Hammer Kasoy. Thanks for tuning in, and please join Pardes for the next episode of Pardes from Jerusalem. Jerusalem.